Welcome to the Zeno Podcast, where we look at how we shape stories and how they shape us. Today we have Professor Aaron Densley with us, and Jackson's going to do the intro for that. <laughs> professor Densley is an acting professor and a mm-hmm. theater professor. He also does the theater workshop class, which is basically the set building class, and I'm in that class. It's a grand old time. <laughs> he went to school in Penn State for his master's, and... I saw an article on the internet about something about a medical play and there was an end of life decisions yeah. play. Could you just elaborate on that? Absolutely. So it was, um, it was this device work that, um, is called drifting and it's a play about, uh, one of my professors, Dr. William Doan. He, he, uh, he had a tragic tragedy in his family and he writes a lot of, uh, independent work. And so he'll do one man shows and things like that. And so we were, he had this play and he wanted us to be a part of it. And his sister was uh, had a traumatic brain injury, and so he often sat there, being a theater person, wondering like what what was what was going on inside of her brain. Like was she there? Because there were times that he felt like you know she was there, and then he felt like she wasn't there, and he felt like all he would go back and replay all of these memories from their from their past together, and and so it was just a really emotional time for him because um she had been in a terrible accident and was in a nursing home and and the doctors were like well this is her existence now she's not going to come out of this coma and she's just going to stay like this you know forever and so it was really hard for for dr doan to see that and have to deal with that because all of his family was like staunch catholic we can't you know we can't terminate her life we can't do that and he was really struggling because he knew her and was like, she would not want this. And is she even there? Like in all of these questions. And so we were trying to figure out. Um, so that was the, the premise of the story. But then we started getting some of the neuroscientists involved at Penn State in the play. And my movement professor who was directing it, Andy Belser, he um, all of his movement work is about, you know, connecting neuroscience to performance right because because our our bodies you know it's just when you're an actor you're talking about sensitivity you know and and sensation right that you're trying to get this emotional reaction out of yourself um, or energetic reaction out of yourself and all of that is neuroscience right it's just neuroscience that we haven't that we don't have the technology for yet and so as we were doing this, we were collaborating together that they, they'd bring in this with these words. Me and um, Megan Pickerel and Jake Wentland were the, were the three that I was, I played Dr. Doan's character. And Megan, my friend, was playing the sister, which was, we called it the body and the bed, right? And so we had this little doll and, and the doll was representing the body and then it would meld back and forth. And so it was just this really interesting thing and as we as we worked it and worked it and worked it we uh we were getting ready for this uh performance in new york uh at a at a space that's almost like it's it's in its intention is to help uh people with their device works to have like a space to perform them mm-hmm. in new york and it's kind of one of the forefront devised theater spaces um and so it's called dixon place and so we went there with it and then after dixon place we got some we got some interest from the the Hershey Medical School in Hershey Pennsylvania and so we went and we performed it there and um, and it was just really really well received because the doctors 
were talking to us and saying, you know, we we have so much time spent on the science of it that we never really get to have any real understanding of what it's like for the family, right? That we, I mean, we can, you know, our bedside manner and all that stuff, we learn about that. But as far as the real struggle of what someone is going through, that this was one of the first times that they had had somebody organize their experience with the end of life of someone that they loved and really articulate what it is that they're going through. And so it was really great um, for them to see and, and have conversations about, okay, how do we, how do we behave in these situations, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do we help families deal with this when maybe there's one family member that is holding on to some kind of false hope? And how do we be more clear but sensitive? It's like, it's just an impossible situation to try to figure out. And so since, since I've been a part of that project, um, we, uh, we graduated and uh, Megan's in New York and Jake is in New York and I'm here. And, and so uh, Dr. Doan and Andy kept working on it and they uh, they turned it into a one-man show with a bunch of video and stuff. And so since since we've left, it's continuing on this awesome journey of research and changing and becoming something different. And so it's a really cool multimedia piece now, and it's just a one-man show. And he's done it back at Dixon Place again and that and at other uh, other venues throughout New York. So it was a really cool opportunity. So they still go to uh, medical schools and they perform it or is it I don't know if he's still going to I don't know if he's still going to medical schools I think that there's still a relationship with Hershey Medical but um I haven't I haven't talked to him about it recently but I know that it's still it's still in progress because he's he's also working on a piece about anxiety because he he openly suffers with anxiety and depression and so he's just constantly using theater as as a way not only to educate other people but also to cope with the hardships. Like one of the most amazing things about drifting was that we were we were performing things as he had just come from the bedside of his sister, right? And so he was struggling through this as as we were and he would write it and then he'd come and have us perform it. Mm-hmm. And it was just I mean, I had to play him. <laughs> right? And so it was really really intimidating, but really a special experience for me to to be there embodying something and helping him in a lot of ways work through this extremely difficult situation and so it's interesting because this type of application of theater is something that people don't think about very often right Mm -hmm. that we think oh theater is just you know go sing and dance make me happy or make me sad and blah 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 but there are so many far-reaching implications of what theater can do especially when it comes to like therapeutic things and and not only teaching other people but also as a tool for your own healing and coping with things that science hasn't gotten it down how to deal with anxiety and depression yet like they they try really hard and they have a lot of things that are working but i i struggle with anxiety and depression and i it's it's this battle that it's so different than anything a lot of people have ever had to deal with because you know there's that stipulation of like oh you're depressed just be happy mm-hmm. right and that's the worst thing to say to someone with depression because they're like i would if i could right and so he he's dealing with um those very personal things uh and putting it on stage and it not only helps him organize this you know kind of sometimes chaotic existence and and it also it also teaches us and helps us kind of see a point of view that 
people not suffering with anxiety or depression couldn't, that they can't understand it. You know, that it's a hard thing to understand that someone's always sad and always worried about something that is out of their control. And so that's that's a big reason why I'm just super grateful that I get to, got to be a part of that. And I'm still really close with, with Dr. Doan and Andrew Belser and all those people that they're, yeah, it's amazing how close you get when you're dealing with that. But his sister passed away during the, um, as we were writing it, like as we were in rehearsals that he got a call it, that she, you know, that she had passed. And it was just really, a. It, I don't think that I will ever have an experience creating theater that was that visceral. And so, yeah. So trying to embody his character, mm-hmm. how did you get into his brain? Or I mean, especially when it's going on, like it's not something that's passed. How did you get to know him enough to portray him on stage? Yeah, so we would spend a lot of time, uh, like after after school, like after our really heavy MFA workload, mm-hmm. that we'd be working, uh, doing all of our course load, and then we'd go afterwards whenever we had like a spare hour or two, maybe three or four hours some days. And we would sit in this room uh, called the ADRI. It's the it's an arts and research design incubator, and it's this space created specifically for this type of performative research. Mm-hmm. And so we would be there, all of us together, and it was amazing because when we would go into that room, like when we were in the theater building, it was Doctor Doan. You know, we all we always called him Andy, but you know he was you know his his role was different. And then when we were in the ADR, it was like all of us were collaborators, were co-collaborators. And so these men that I, you know, that I aspired to, that they were then, they became my colleagues. And it was just, it was amazing. So I got to know uh, Dr. Doan in a different light because mm-hmm. the formalities that existed outside didn't exist in that room. Mm-hmm. That it was, you know, I would ask him and I would ask him questions. I'd be like, so how, how was that? You know, what was that? What was going on? And, and he was extremely open with what was going on, which I think was the most like I can't imagine like doing that and being as open and as gracious as he was. And so we did that. There was that stuff. And then there was the regular character analysis things like I had a script and I would look through it. And and, um, you know, every actor has to take their own interpretation on someone. Right. Uh, because when you're when you're playing a character, you are the character mm-hmm. that there's no longer this weird separation. Like I'm not really pretending to be someone else. I'm being me under imaginary circumstances. Right. And so um, but as far as some of his mannerisms, I would just observe that he always had this thing where he'd, he'd like cross his arms and he would just kind of like shift his weight from one to the other. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to watch him in just his every day. And try to you know practice walking like him and things like that. And so I, I'm also a very physical and movement oriented actor. And mm-hmm. so a lot of what I do, I find a lot of use in in just making shapes with my body and, and using movement exercises as a way to understand a character more. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's just empathy. Yeah. You know, it's just mm-hmm. finding a way to have that type of uh, empathy for somebody that isn't you. And understand try to understand the best you can is what they're going through mm-hmm. yeah that's so cool yeah, yeah. it was awesome so was is cool. this you said devised work mm-hmm. is that can you define that yeah so devised work is uh, I've been looking up because it's it's kind of a new a new ish I mean it's been around mm-hmm. for a while but it's becoming a phrase that a lot of theatrical practitioners uh, use on the mm-hmm. daily it's like oh yeah this device theater piece that we did Basically, what it means is it's when the ensemble, the director, the writer, um, 
and all the technical people that all of them are involved in creating a story for the very first time. Okay. Right. And so then, but then the question becomes, well, you know, is, is there still a writer? Are they still, you know, mm-hmm. in control of the story who's and stuff like who's, who's, who's like number who's... one and who's this kind of, and so drifting though, it had some devised elements to it. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, some people would say that it's not pure devised theater because Dr. Doan was the playwright right. and Andy was the director. And then, but we, we had a sound, but both of them were heavily influenced by what we were doing on stage. And so if, if we did something different or if we had a thought, it was open and we'd share it and then they'd like delete something or write something in. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's similar to the project that's going on. Not, not, not a hundred percent, but it's, it's, it's a more liberal version of what we're doing right now with Solana that the play that we're doing here on campus is it's a workshop. Mm -hmm. And so they were, they had a meeting with the whole cast and they just asked the cast, okay, what's your story? Right. Right. And then as we did the read through last night, some of those stories were showing up in the, uh, in the play. And so it's just another way to gather information and creating. And so one of the device pieces that I, that was actually a little more purely devised work Mm -hmm. was with, uh, this intensive, with uh, the Steppen, some people that are connected to the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, uh-huh. which is kind of at the forefront of all of this kind of stuff, right? And so they um, they were there, and they they brought this you know this short story, um, and we and we all got together and we figured it out, right, as an ensemble. So there was I think like what was it sixteen? Yeah, I think like twelve to sixteen of us actors. And there were directors and, and movement people and every, we all just got together and we tried to figure out, OK, how are we going to tell the story? Because it's not it's not a play. It's a short story. Yeah. Right. And so we, we got the short story and then we're like, well, we need this character. So who wants to do this? And oh, you'd be great at this. And what if we had? And and so you just figure it out together as a group. Um, and it's really fun because the thing I like about device work is that the ensemble takes takes center stage. Mm-hmm. Right. That there's still there's still leads. Right. There's still, you know, the main character and all of these different characters. But as an ensemble who created the piece, you invest more of yourself into it because those ideas were your ideas. Right. And one of the big things that I wish uh, anybody auditioning for any type of theater or acting or anything that they would just get out of their heads that that the lead role is the most important role. Mm-hmm. And that the most talented person goes to the lead. If you've if you've watched The Greatest Showman recently, yeah. that is a perfect example of what happens when the ensemble steps up their game. Yeah. Right. It's that an the awesome on, show. With the, without the ensemble, right? I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. like without the ensemble, that show would not be what it is. Absolutely. Like I mean, I love Hugh Jackman. He is an amazing actor, mm-hmm. and you know, all the other leads in that are they're amazing individuals but it was their cohesiveness and the fact that there were no small roles in that show none of them were you know even the tall guy that didn't really say more (laughs) than a couple lines right that each one of those people that they have a lasting impression because they realized that they were that they were an important part in that piece right and as a as somebody who's starting to get more on the other side of the table where I'm seeing things from a director's perspective and casting perspective and, you know, an acting coach perspective that I start to see how frustrating it can be when like an actor is, you know, a little bit maybe full of themselves and they're like, I, I don't, I don't, 
I can't be in the show because I'm not the lead. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> this could be awesome with you because you're an amazing actor, but I need you here more yeah. than I need you there. Right. right. And uh, it's just I, I always I always say this, but acting is one of the most selfless positions when you do it well, when you do it well, that it's a service position mm -hmm. because it's not about me. It no longer becomes about me. It becomes about the audience's experience and the character who I'm trying to portray, right? And trying to do them justice. And so it really, if you're a good actor, I think the mark of a good actor is one who recognizes that they are a servant to the story and a servant to the audience rather than someone who's like, oh, look, it's all about me. I'm so wonderful. <laughs> it's just, that's, that's, not, that's not it. Missing the point. Come on. I feel like you could feel an audience in a room, you know, you could feel the vibe, mm -hmm. but how do you anticipate for audiences? How do you plan to create empathy with a character? So you're, are you asking how do I uh, clarify a little bit? So, I mean, you're going to have to win over the crowd basically at yeah. some point, but I guess like, what do you do to anticipate that? Like, how do you anticipate to serve the audience? Oh, so yeah. So what, what I do is, so when it's about the audience, it's, I guess, let me, let me try to figure out a more accurate and precise way to say this, that when I'm performing, if I'm doing it for myself, instantly I'm cutting off the audience, that the audience is no longer there, right? We talk about the fourth wall in theater and there's, you know, what the fourth wall means is that like right here in this room, there are four walls, right? And there's a lovely somebody watching us from through the window but uh <laughs> but there's but these four walls don't exist on a stage right on a stage there's only like three walls and then there's this invisible wall that the audience is sitting behind right and so oftentimes what actors will do is they'll they'll that they'll when they're cutting off the audience they pretend as if they are in this room where nobody else is right but you can't actually ever ignore that there is an audience out there and so the way that you're sensitive to what the audience needs is in the way that you you um, you're connected with your scene partner. So if we're if we're having this scene, right, and it's something funny, and there's there's this laugh or there's this joke coming up or there's this funny bit that's supposed to be funny for the audience, blah blah blah, and we do it and the audience doesn't laugh, we don't just sit there and mm -hmm. wait until someone you. You, you react to that. You feel what the audience is doing, right? And you can hear how they're reacting. And when they laugh, you have to let them laugh. Oftentimes, what will happen is that actors will panic. They'll, they'll be doing this thing. They'll do something that they didn't even think was funny because they were having an honest moment and the audience is enjoying it. And then they just keep on talking. And then the audience doesn't have a moment to enjoy it, mm. right? And so there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an, almost an art into reading the audience and still staying in the moment that you hear them you hear them laughing and then right at the peak of the laughter there's this moment where it starts to drop down just a little bit and that's when you start going again right because there are times and then you know there are other people that that oscillate to the opposite direction that they start stealing focus just to be funny or they start changing things and doing ridiculous mm -hmm. stuff that's not a part of the play just to get a laugh right and that's not respecting the audience either, because then what you're doing is you're saying, look at me, this is more important than the story, right? And they didn't come necessarily to see you, unless it's your grandma and mom, right? <laughs> but aside from them, they didn't come to just see you. They came to see the story and the show. And so uh, the way that you can anticipate that is to just be open and get involved in 
being connected with the reality of being, right? And the reality of doing, yeah? That oftentimes when actors are on stage, especially beginning actors, but even professional actors do it, that they they just kind of phone it in, that they're not really there. They're not really in the space that they say they're in. They're just kind of going through the motions. Or they do something because they think it'll be funny, and it's sometimes it is like sometimes people kind of give a courtesy laugh and then it's over. Mm-hmm. But the really, really hilarious ones are the ones where people are 100 percent serious about what they're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the, the way that you that you connect with the audience like that is that you you recognize that they're there. You don't ignore their existence. Right. That you start to feel their energy and you feel, OK, are they with me? Or are they not with me? You know, and so it's it's something that I think some actors that they're just obnoxious and can do it right away. Mm-hmm. But most actors, I think it just takes practice or as my one of my teachers, Richard Robichaud, said that it just takes hours in the cockpit. You just have to be in there and you just have to do it. So. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So going back to devised work a little bit. Yeah. How is devised work uh, different than traditional writing? And then how does that affect the the characters in the story yeah like is it harder for playwrights to just sit down and just write something out and then work with the actors to kind of create them into the story or is it more like devised work is easier because it's more free-flowing so i think that most of the writers that i know that um like there's this one play we did id uh the playwright's name is sangu jakam and he's uh he was a writer with the emerging writers group at the public theater which a lot of people, you know, out here haven't really heard of, but the public theater in New York is kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so he was writing with them, and Penn State was able to, uh, to to contract him to write a play for us. And so he came, and the way that he wrote is he came with kind of an idea of what he had, what he had wanted to write, um, but he was going to base it off of what we had together. And so that's another one similar to Dr. Doan's play where it was that he had an idea and then he came and had an ensemble of actors and we did different exercises and talked about things and talked about the construct of race and racism in America because he was pretty sure that that's most of his work is surrounding that and trying to, you know, solve that problem of, of racism and the construct of it, not necessarily like the individual problems, but this big construct of it. And so we were trying to tackle that, which is kind of a big feat. But (laughs) so we were so for him, it was a really, really great gift to have us there because he he was basing his characters off of things that he saw us do. And so I think that it depends on the playwright. It depends on what kind of writer they are. But I think that most of the playwrights that I know that they would just, you know, they would die to have an ensemble of people to just you know use and say all right i have this story start doing something let's play these games (laughs) let's let's, let's roll with it and let's let's just do some improv exercises and and try to figure out you know what what is here right because then you have somebody and you have something in front of you i guess the the pitfall is is that when you have just a specific group of people then um your creativity to to a lesser playwright it could be kind of stunted because, but you know, your creativity and your imagination is is your tool. I think as a playwright, ultimately, mm-hmm. and so, but you, they get. I think playwrights generally they can get their inspiration from anywhere. Um, I've dabbled with trying to write my own stuff, and so for me, I take it from characters that I know, people that I know, and base it and shift it 
and things like that to try to have a bit of humanity in it but yeah so that's um so the, the big difference though between between i guess devised and device work and more traditional theater is that in traditional theater you're just kind of a you're a servant to the text a little bit more in a different your relationship to the text is different um because that's that's where most of the time you don't ever get the playwright and so you and the director have to figure out together okay what is what is this about what is this character going through how are we going to tell this story um versus devised work where if it's purely devised work you have a whole group of people that are creating this together and you do it for the first time right and so it's like you're in the room with the playwright because all of you are the playwright and so i've been really lucky because i've worked with uh, you know quite a few playwrights now and that doesn't happen very often for a lot of actors it's very rare that you get to be in the room with the writer and then you get to perform the writer's work while they're there that that doesn't happen very often and so it's a really cool opportunity to see that because you you just get a different relationship and you get a different insight and like this the the script analysis is just different when the playwrights there because they're the ones who wrote it and you can say well, what was your intention with this and blah 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 and they're like well i don't really know what do you think <laughs> and then you can tell them and they're like yeah that's great that's i think yeah. that's that's close to what i was hoping so that's the big difference is that device work is much more hands-on i i really enjoy device work but the thing that's hard about device work is coming up with a story that matters mm -hmm. that the playwrights and and the, the traditional plays it's kind of like the difference between reading someone's blog and reading an article they might say the exact same thing but like a published article that had to go through a group of people that say oh yeah this is valid this is an important thing to say because of this here we're going to put our our you know jstor stamp of approval <laughs> on it and send it to you right okay and then you know and then someone's someone's blog is just like oh auntie frederica wrote this blog and i'm going to go read it now and the, the it might be extremely valid and extremely poignant yeah. right and worthy to be published but she just didn't go through the steps right and so but then yeah. there's also other blogs that you're just like this was a waste of my time <laughs> and so yeah. <laughs> yeah but still fun <laughs> yeah but still fun but still fun right and so it's uh yeah so that's that's the big difference it's the difference between i think published work and non-published work now device mm -hmm. works can become published um, but it's just a different way of creating yeah. uh, the theater. I was going to ask, are there, is it like a tendency of devised work to stay smaller production usually? Or like, would I know any devised works that have, I don't know, gotten rewritten and then become a bigger musical? I am not a scholar of all the devised works that are out there right now. Um, I think that for the mo most of the big name musicals, like the ones on Broadway and stuff like that, have a writing team attached to them um, because it's really, it's not like, like I said, we're kind of at the grassroots of this new device. Like device work has been around forever. Like I think probably since like the fifties and sixties, like more of the sixties, seventies is when mm -hmm. it started really starting to become a, a popular art form. But now it's becoming something that's even more viable. Right. And so there are a lot of theatrical productions that I think are probably off Broadway. Uh, I even hesitate to say that though, because there might be some on Broadway that I just haven't heard of yet because my life is kind of education town and working on my, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, there's a lot on my plate, but, um, but like, 
another thing about Broadway is that the, the producers, they need kind of a sure bet, right? Because it costs a lot of money to produce something, especially in Times Square in New York City or in the city at all. Yeah. It's expensive. And so they're not going to produce something that a bunch of people are like, yeah, this is this is something cool that it has to be proven before it gets there. That's why, you know, like something like, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda that he already has in the Heights and he are, and now he has Hamilton. And so but he got Hamilton to be so massive. I mean, he'd been working on that forever. And I'm sure that people were helping him. Right. That he you know, he wrote it. But then there's you know, I'm sure he'd be the first person to say, yeah, I couldn't have done this without, you know, so and so and so and so and so and so. And if you notice that if you look at the cast of In the Heights and in the cast of uh, in Hamilton, that a lot of the actors are the same because he likes to work with the same people. And so um, that's that's why devised this word devised work is such a weird ethereal thing right now. It's not it's really hard to define because isn't anything devised it's like the word devised means to create something right. and so it's like well if you sit down and you write something it's right. like well yeah that's a devised that's piece a... that you devised <laughs> as you were sitting in your bedroom typing on yes. your bed. i'm devising this as you know right <laughs> and so, i'm devising yes. a plan right and so it's a uh, so but as far as the ensemble that that the ensemble's role in a musical is is, is pretty vital I think, especially during the workshop workshop stages, like if you were to ask, you know, Mike and Eileen Reed, Mike, Mike Heitzman and Eileen Reed that are here right now, that they um, they would say that it's just invaluable the stuff that they've learned from the different workshops that they've been able to do throughout the country, as they're trying to prepare this to to make a New York debut one day. That that's the ultimate goal for them, and so they uh, playwrights are. Most most playwrights, I think, are pretty humble people that they're they're not really some some I'm sure are pretty arrogant. But I think it for the most part, the playwrights that I've met, that they're very respectful and they're very they 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 love the human experience. Otherwise, they wouldn't be writing about it. Mm. So did that answer your question? I don't even remember where it came from, but you it was know, interesting. It was a good the difference thought. between device and people, oh, yeah. I think. I think yeah. we got there. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a good train thought. I was on it. But yeah. we also wanted to ask you about your South Africa play. Yeah, yeah, did yeah. You, did you go specifically to make the play to South Africa? So it was the it was this play ID with mm-hmm. Sangu Jakam from the oh, public. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. what we did is we is that play we got together and we all did our all took a DNA test. And so because the way that he wanted to tackle uh, racism through this play was, what are you really like? Mm. Like we all have these ideas. Oh, yeah, I'm European. I'm white. I'm totally, you know, white power, blah, 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 all that stuff. And and then (laughs) to find out that this this guy who is, you know, extremely racist, this white privileged, you know, cop that I played, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that he was that he was like 30 percent African. Wow. Right. Mm -hmm. And because that happens that that there's you know all kinds of stuff one of the actresses my dear dear friend lj stewart she's she's just a storm of an actress just changed changing the world right now she's amazing but she um she's very Mm fair-skinned uh from from alabama blue eyes gorgeous african-american woman and she when she i'll never forget when she got I hope she never. I hope she hears. If she hears this, I'm sorry, Ella, if I'm being too personal about your life. But, um, but she, um, I'll never. It was just so visceral for me because she and many other African Americans can't do their ancestry farther back than you know the 1800s when their family was illegally brought here from yeah. Africa, right. right? And, well, 
I guess legally at that point, but awfully brought here. But um, she, so she had she had no idea, and so she had always been told growing up in in Southern Alabama that you're you're white, you're not mm-hmm. black, you're white, right? Because her skin was so fair and oh. her eyes were blue, and so she she you know had a she shared with me some points about how she had a trouble fitting in sometimes mm-hmm. because she didn't know what group she she belonged in. Now she's an extremely powerful woman, but she when she got her DNA test, it was eighty percent African, wow. like 80, 89 or something like that, like extremely high, extremely high, and from a specific uh, tribe in oh, Cameroon. Wow. And so to have that gift given to her was just something that I don't know. I'll never forget that. And you know to see the other the other African Americans in the group too, their reaction both. You know, one of my friends, he didn't he didn't get the answer that he was looking for. And, and, you know, he's he's from Flint, Michigan. And he also, you know, his mom was white and his dad was African-American. And he and he just didn't he didn't know. I mean, he knew his his mom's side, but he never really got much of his dad's side till much later. And so this process was really hard for him because it came back like 80 percent European, which is not what he necessarily wanted to hear. Um, because he wanted his he he knew that part and mm-hmm. so it's not that he hated that part of his that's not it right but he wanted to know Explore. what the he wanted to know the African part where does that come from mm-hmm. and so I was like six that that DNA test said that I was 16% from sub uh, Indian Indian subcontinent so from India and I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm Mormon. I know all of my ancestry. <laughs> yeah, like Where did that? And so yeah. that was just such a huge shock for me. Yeah. And so we did that. And each one of us, you know, we each one of us had some kind of surprise in our DNA. Either mm-hmm. either it was more European than we thought or more African than we thought. Or I didn't even know African was in there yeah. kind of thing. And so we did this play involving all these different people and it was a hip-hop play and so there was a lot of rapping involved and you know and that type of that that genre which i think is just powerful and extremely effective for today's stories and so we we did it and and we'd workshopped it and workshopped it and workshopped it and we rehearsed it and rehearsed it and then we took it to a festival in Grahamstown, south africa and so um where apartheid is still a very fresh wound i think for some people but the thing that was amazing about doing that play about the construct of racism in America in a place where they, I think, have dealt with the issue of race and racism mm-hmm. and very fresh in their history. They've, they've dealt with it with so much grace mm-hmm. that it's just amazing. I'll, I will. This is another memory I'll never forget from that. But we were outside of one of the performances and one of the uh, one of the ushers, he's this older gentleman in, in Africa, and he was he was sitting there and he was talking to me and and I was just asking, him, like, so how do you how do you do it? You know, as a black African, how do you deal with, you know, like seeing people like me or seeing other people like white people that, you know, because he was old enough to have been like very like he's probably in his 60s. And so most of his life was spent when there was all these awful things happening because of apartheid. And and he said, he said, I realized that I can't hate my brother. And I was like, what? That's amazing because he was just like, it's, it's pointless. It's done. It's, mm-hmm. it's over. Nothing, nothing that I do or don't do is going to stop the, the terrors that have happened from happening. They've already happened. So the only thing that I can do, the only option for me is to love the person and to change wow. and to move on. 
and every single person that I met there that was the case and so it was incredible to go down there and perform that play and uh, you know see the culture and work on it some more and then when we came back we we, we did a few more performances around Pennsylvania and and um, yeah, it was just it was just a phenomenal experience. And so yeah, that was the South Africa play. Oh okay. We yeah. we we took it down there um, for that purpose to show them, and it was really well received. Everybody there was like, "This is really cool. I had no idea that this was going on." Yeah. And so, what was the reception like versus like the South Africa versus Pennsylvania? Like, oh, how did man. people South Africa view it differently? loved it? Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, it was like controversy town. Really. Like there were so there's a point in the play at the end where like my my character was undercover michael Mm -hmm. and he was this white you know vehemently racist cop right and so you know he had i had my own backstory for why he was that way but he was just this almost irredeemable human being and that was the point because at the very end of the play he gets his dna test done and or his wife steals his DNA. Like it's a really comedic thing that he's sleeping, and she comes up with this woman and like takes some cells from like takes uh-huh. it and sends it off to DNA because she's sick of him being you know this inappropriate awful person. Yeah. And she's like, I'm gonna change you. And so he gets the DNA, she gets the DNA test. It turns out that he's 80 percent African. Not not 80 percent. Like like that's ridiculous. It was like 30 something. Like, mm-hmm. Like 28% African. But still like substantial. Still a substantial amount of Africa, right? And so it just rocks this guy to his core because he's been awful to these people and he's like, I don't even, what does this mean now? And so he goes and he he grabs his gun and he points it and and holds up these two black kids Mm -hmm. and is like at gunpoint, like telling him, look, I don't know what this is. I don't, I've I've never used the N word. I don't run around, you know, calling, I don't wear a swastika. I don't do this. So I don't understand. What does this mean? If I'm black, blah, 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 blah. And he says, I don't know. Should I just kill myself? Right. And so, and so he just, so he pulls the gun on himself and is about to do it. And, and then the freeze, the, the frame stops. And then we rewind and we kind of do a replay mm-hmm. on a different option. And the, the, the black kid uh, played by one of my dear friends, Cecil Bletcher, he, he comes up as I have him at gunpoint and he puts his head against the gun. And he just says, I see you. I see you. Oh. And it just, this guy, this guy crumbles and falls. And so that was, so the, the one, one night, I'll, I'll never forget this night. It was, um, it was a very ruckus night that night. But we were there, and um, and I had him at gunpoint, and I was asking him the question, "What should I do? What should I do?" Someone from the audience, before I even before they even knew mm-hmm. that I was going to pull the gun on myself, yeah. yelled, "Kill yourself!" Blank, blankety, blank. Wow. And so, and so that night I decided to give it to him. And so mm-hmm. I looked out at the audience, because normally I just look at him. And I cocked my gun. I put it to my head. But that night, I looked wow. out at them, and I cocked the gun. I put it to my head. Oh my god! And and they and they stopped it, and we went and finished the play how it was supposed to be. And afterwards, I, I got in my regular clothes and I went out to the lobby, and there was this group of Black African African American people sitting there, mm-hmm. and they were terrified of me. Really? Like they, I went to just shake their hand and be like, "Hey, how's it going?" They would not make eye contact with me. It was wow. it was really it was really interesting. And then there were some of my white friends that had a really hard time with it because there was limited amount of time in this play Mm -hmm. to tell everybody's story. And so we were focusing on, you know, that we were focusing on this kind of from a, 
from a, a African-American perspective, but also there were lots of elements of truth from what actually is happening yeah. in America. And so there were some white people that didn't sit well with mm -hmm. because they didn't want to believe that, you know, that there were racist white cops in the world. Right. And, and they felt a little attacked by it. But that but I think that that type of theater that it's uh, it's good to be challenged sometimes. Right. Right. It's good to do that because you start to really question things that you wouldn't normally question. Mm -hmm. And in that questioning, you can really start to um, to discover a deeper understanding of the human condition. Yeah. And again, I think that that's the most important thing about theater, right? Is that theater is an acting classes and that kind of stuff. There's no other class offered that will allow you to empathize and practice empathizing with people who are completely different than you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the value of theater is that you start either as an audience member or as a participant that you have an opportunity to empathize with someone other than yourself. Mm -hmm. And you start to see things from a different point of view and you can become more mindful, uh, a more mindful human being and contributor to your society. And so I think that that's the most. But yeah, so that's a, that play South Africa was pretty awesome. Why do you think it was so different between the two countries, I guess? Because, like, what, I don't know, cultural aspects? Like, what, mm -hmm. like, what about the well, country's think, legacy, like, So I think that? that, I think that in America, and this is, again, my opinion, right? Yeah. My from research, what and from what I saw, and from my, my, you know, little amount of research around this, and trying to understand all points of view, that in America, it feels like, at least as a white male in this culture, that it feels like a lot of white people or Euro American people, Europe, American European people, <laughs> that we um, that we kind of felt and were told that that racism died with Martin Luther King Jr. Right, that he he solved the problem of racism with his speech, right, and that since then we don't you know all kinds of you know things have been said. All while my friends in South, you know, in the South American, like not South America, but like South United States, the Southern United States, that they're still getting, you know, shot because they're black, not for really any other reason than a white police officer is afraid of them because they've, you know, they've taken this, you know, too far and they, they're afraid of them or, you know, they have legitimate reasons as to why they don't trust black people or things like that but I even remember from a young age my grandpa telling me to never trust a Mexican because his grandfather was stabbed in the back by one one time yes. right and I'm like well okay but most of my friends are Hispanic so <laughs> dad and grandpa I'm 10 uh, yeah. <laughs> right and so but that type of stuff that we but yet I then turned around and was like, oh, yeah, racism doesn't exist in our country anymore. There aren't racists. Racists aren't right. real. They're this small little group of like Nazis somewhere, but they right. hide themselves. Them. Right. Yeah. And then but then today it's like we still see like especially under, you know, the recent administration and the controversy that that's caused. There's a lot of, you know, people swastika wearing Nazis running around yeah. like vehemently saying that they are the master race in America and they're kind of going untouched. And so in a in a country where racism doesn't exist mm -hmm. that that shouldn't be here right and so it's really hard because these words like white privileged are tossed around now and and white people especially people that don't that come from 
impoverished backgrounds like myself that we that's a hard thing for us to understand because the word white privilege means that mm -hmm. oh, oh i i somehow because i'm white <laughs> life is easier for me right and and though that's true that it's not necessarily financially true right that it doesn't have to be financially true but that what it does mean is that i will never ever as a white person ever experience being afraid of being shot by a police officer i'll never have to deal with that i will likely never ever be looked at at a at the mall and be followed around and be asked if i had stolen something which i know my friends have it also means that i will always get a cab in new york city we we did this we did this one time that me and a couple of my friends that we were in new york and they were black i'm white and they're like, Aaron, grab us a cab. And I'm like, what? Why don't you grab a cab? And he's like, they'll never stop for me. I'm like, whatever. They will too. Mm -hmm. And so like, right, watch. He stood out there. Four or five cabs passed. I stepped out there. Didn't even, didn't even get to raise my hand. A cab stopped. The first one wow. that came by. Another time we were in New York, we were just walking across the street. And like we were waiting for, for a crosswalk, right? Mm -hmm. And we were all standing there. And... And my two, my, one of my friends from, he's Hispanic from Texas, and the other one is black from Chicago, and they're standing in front of me, and this cab pulls over, and he's like, you guys in your ride? And, and, and they looked at each other, and they're like, what? No, we're good. We're just going across the street. And he's like, okay, and he left. And they're like, wait, why did that? Oh, Aaron's with us. He had stopped for me, because they, they had never had a cab uh, stop yeah. for them like that just pull over and wow. solicit their patronage mm -hmm. right wow. and so that's something i will never have to experience that you know amongst a myriad of other things right i will never ever have to experience those things that i know my my black american friends have and and that's the privilege we're talking about it's nothing more than that mm -hmm. and so when white people say things like oh i'm not privileged blah 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 or white privilege isn't a thing that it's kind of a slap in the face or it's poking this 400 year old wound that still is around from slavery because slavery like like racism never stopped we just stopped looking at it mm -hmm. when martin luther king jr died right we just and when i mean we i mean we in mm -hmm. like the white people that we stopped and i really don't like that phrase white people for me i'm european american if we have to say african american then mm -hmm. i should be european american but um that's just my own preference not putting on anybody else, but um, but I think that the reason that it was received differently in both countries was because in South Africa, I think that they that that Nelson Mandela, you know, with peace and reconciliation, that that he did something different than than we have. That we haven't we haven't had a leader in that position. I mean. It was wonderful to have President Obama in because it's starting to show, yeah, you know, we're, we're starting to be a little more open-minded with the way that we vote. But he had a different job, right? That he, that he wasn't elected from, like, like, like President Mandela. I mean, he got, out of, he got out of prison where he had been imprisoned for being black, you know? And then he was the leader of the country. And he had just as many things as, and, and varying things to deal with, but he chose for his platform. And the first thing to talk about is peace and reconciliation mm -hmm. that we, that there is no way that, that the white people, that the Africans can actually change what's happened. Nothing is going to give me back the years that I spent on Robben Island. Right. 
but we can move forward and we have to move forward. And so I think in America, we haven't, we haven't had, um, we haven't heard that yet, right? It's been said, but we haven't heard it yet as a people because it's still a really, it's been a festering wound, I think, for 400 years. And, and for us on the, the privileged end of it, that we've, you know, we've never had to deal with the things, right? But, but the African-Americans in this country have and they've been dealing with it. And so to say that it doesn't exist is it's really hard for them to, to hear and accept because, you know, and, and, and it is, I mean, I've been blind to it, you know, mm-hmm. un, for the majority of my life until I did this play, you know, another plug for plays and acting and theater, <laughs> right. That I, I, I seriously, I don't know that I would have had my eyes opened to this and understood it had I not taken the chance to really get to know people. And so I think that I think that people in America, especially white people, but also people on both sides of this issue, that there's a lot of harsh feelings and a lot of harsh things have been said and done. And it's really hard. And so we've got to tough up. We've got to sit down and we've got to be able to see each other, you know, for everything that they are as individuals that and this is probably I'm, I feel like I'm rambling, but no, this is so one of the big things that happened to me in grad school was I was talking with one of my friends, Cecil, and he's a kid from Chicago. And we were doing this exercise and it came out in the exercise that he said, you make me uncomfortable because you're white. And I was like, what? What do you mean? I'm one of the nicest guys in the world. How can I make you uncomfortable? And so after we were walking, I know I'm not, I'm like not, and I, I mean, I had hair then. And so I was even less intimidating than I am now where I shaved my head. And so we, we were walking to the bus just to go back to our cars and drive home. And I was like, Cecil, I, you know, please don't take this the wrong way. But I want to know what it's been like for you, Cecil Blutcher, as a black man in America. I don't want you to speak for all of all of the black people or everybody with, you know, with more pigment in their skin than I have. But what, what has been your experience in America? And he stopped and he looked at me and he was like, he just started laughing. He's like, Aaron, you are the first white person to ever ask me that question. And he's in his twenties. Right. And he just said, thank you for asking me. And so he told me what, what, you know, what his experience was. And, and since then, you know, like people that I, I don't, it's not just I go up to random people and ask, but <laughs> like my, the head of my MFA program is, a, is, a, is an African-American from the South. And he, and he told me how he never got, like he has a hard time catching cabs in New York. And I asked him, what's it been like for you, Steve, as a, as an African-American in America? And he said the same thing. He's 40. And he was like, no one's ever asked me that. No white person has ever asked me that question. And that's the problem, right? And I, I was open with all of them too. I'm like, feel free to not answer, right? I'm not. I'm, if you, if you don't feel comfortable, that, please don't. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm just. I want to know what your experience has been because I'm tired of making assumptions, right? Which most of the time are wrong. Sometimes they're right, depending on the individual. But, but we need to start seeing people as people. It takes more work, right? And you're never going to get rid of your prejudices and judgments. You're never going to. Right. Like you're going to see somebody and you're going to make a, a rash judgment. You're going to make pre- pre- a prejudice towards that person. 
what you have to do is you have to see beyond that. You have to see the person as what they are, all of what they are, right? Their skin color, their, their origin, their family history, what they identify as, all of these things just to get to know the person, right? You have to know those things about them. The only way to do that is to get to know individuals and to get, see, to, get to the place where you can see people as individuals, not as a group of white people or black people or Asian people or whatever that you have to get to a place where you see them as an individual person made up of all of their history and all of their heritage, no matter what it is, mm -hmm. right? Like for anybody to play me, they have to know that I, that I walk around feeling like the inside of me is part Samoan. They should know that about me because I grew up with a bunch of Samoans in Washington and I, I always gravitate whenever I go to the PCC, I always gravitate to the Samoan village because that's mm -hmm. where I feel at home, right? They need to know that about me but they would never know that about me just by looking at me, right? And so that's, so I think that to answer your question, why it was received differently, I think that that's why. I think that in America, we're st we are still struggling, we're in the thick of it. And I really hope that, that the current administration and all the things that are happening, that we don't let that distract us from continuing to struggle with this because it, we can't just forget it. We can't too many, too many, you know, young men and women have died and been abused because of our inability to see each other, you know, and another soapbox I could get on is about women. It's the same thing, right? Like Jackson and I will never, ever have to be afraid of walking in the dark by ourselves at night. We will never have to worry about that. We will never have to question whether or not we got a job because of our gender. We will never have to question if that person looked at us funny because they had something up their sleeve or they were objectifying me because of the clothes I was wearing. We will never have to deal with that ever. And that's male privilege, right? That's the privilege of being a man in this country and in this world, frankly. And so it's those types of things are things that will only get solved when we start to see each other and empathize with one another on an individual basis, which is harder and more time consuming. But I'd rather do that than see more people die unjustly and abused unjustly, right? So it's like all these ideas, you feel like that was kind of the point of making the play, the ID play. It's like, it's yeah. a way of portraying like a way that we can have peace and reconciliation. Yeah, I think that it was a it was it was trying really hard. And again, we, we only worked on it for like, I think, uh, in earnest, in its final iteration, we only worked on it for like a year. And then we all graduated and left mm -hmm. and the project kind of just exists now mm -hmm. until Sangu decides to do something else with it. Um, and so what we were trying to do is we're trying to articulate, well, what can we do? Like what what is something that I personally, Aaron Densley, can do to solve this problem? because it feels too big, right? Because there are, there are African-Americans that are getting shot for no reason. And there are you know, white people that are good white people that are getting, dis not discriminated against, but that they have these heavy prejudices towards and are being hated because they're white and, but they're wonderful people. Mm -hmm. But, and so there's just so much hate and divisiveness happening in this country that's supposed to be for everybody it's supposed to be united, right? And so what do we do? I don't, I don't. And so we were looking at this and, and Sangu does a lot of stuff around DNA. And so we decided to take our DNA tests and we're like, you know what? Seeing, there's something in that. 
That's not, I'm not offering that as the only solution um, because you have to take the next step, right? You can't just passively sit back. You've got to do something about it. But, um, but I think that, I think that it's a great place to start. And so I think that ID, that was the point of writing. It was to try, it was just a bunch of writers, you know, just a bunch of artists trying to figure out this conversation. And I don't think we did it perfectly. Right. And, and, and there was a lot in our, in our company, it was not easy. <laughs> that show was not an easy one to create. There were people that had really hard hurt feelings because of it. And some people had, you know, some people ended up leaving the program over it. And, mm-hmm. and it was, it was hard. It was a hard thing, you know, and it's not, you know, the person who left, it wasn't, it wasn't all his fault. It wasn't all his fault. And it wasn't all the other parts fault. It was just a bunch of, it was a mess. It was just a mess an impossible it was a mess of impossible situations and i think that when we talk about you know you know male privilege and white privilege and all these inequalities between gender and race and and i you know personal identity and things like that that it's just i you know it just feels like a big mess Mm -hmm. and so we none of us wanted that and so we i think that's why sangu decided to write it and that's i think that's why he continues to because he's trying to find a way to, to, to offer some kind of solution for it. And so that's what we came up with. So I think it's a good place to start, but I don't think it's certainly not the only solution. So basically like theater is a way of dealing with huge issues, but in micro, like in small Mm -hmm. scale. Yeah, I think so. I think that, I think that, um, all of us that were affected by it, I mean, it's like the ripple effect, right? that you know you make one tiny little drop and it'll affect the whole water if you let it and um you know as long as you don't put up dams (laughs) and so but if but i think that that's the power that theater and and media can have right if we allow it to i think that there's there's the issue of making money right and that's and that's and and celebrity done that's a completely different beast right that I often get when I'm when I tell people I'm an actor, they're like, "Oh, so what have you been in?" I'm like, <laughs> "I am the only professional that you would ever ask that to." And they're yeah. like, well, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "Do you ask your dentist? So are you President Obama's dentist, or are you just like a regular <laughs> community dentist, right?" Or wait, 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 before before you operate on me, emergency technician, are you like a celebrity technician? Like, have you have you worked on anybody that I know before <laughs> you saved my life, <laughs> right? I am the only one. I am the, like actors are the only ones, but yet they, they're like, so what have you been in? Have you been anything I know? I'm like, no, but I've done a lot of work. And they're like, oh, okay. So, so you're just like a community actor. So what do you really do? I'm like, <laughs> I really am an actor. Like, that's really what I do. I go out and I audition and they're yeah. like, well, how do you, and before I was a professional actor, they're like, so you're getting your degree in theater. So what are you going to do with that? I'm like, I'm going to act <laughs> and I'm going to get paid to do it. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just, it's hard. It's hard because people see what people outside of theater see is they see you know these celebrities and all these people with tons of money and they're like well don't you want to make millions of dollars i'm like no i want to make enough money to put a roof over my family's head and feed them that's kind of it (laughs) because everything else they can do on their own and that is a much more doable thing being a celebrity is up to new york and la and so theater the theater that i'm interested in and what my business is is trying to affect change for the positive through art and through um, through my medium of art, which is portraying life under imaginary circumstances and and teaching people to have empathy, right? 
both through my performances and through my my teaching here at the school Mm -hmm. right that there's just so much empathy that you can learn from this art form and i think that that's what this world needs more of and so that's how i'm choosing to make my little footprint on my time here on earth because i think that that's important i think it's important that we do stuff more than just for ourselves Mm -hmm. and i think artists artists are kind of i mean i'm biased because i am one (laughs) but I think we artists have a really good grasp on on sacrificing monetary gains for uh, for something we feel passionately about, and I think that I think that that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing because um, I'm not a leech on society, like some people think. You know, as as actors, that it's kind of a oh, you're an actor. Okay, so you you wait tables for a living. I've never waited a table in my life. Actually, the only time I ever waited tables, no, the only time I waited tables was when I was a student here at PCC, at the Hale uh, Aloha. Yes. That's the only time I've waited tables. As an actor, nope, never waited tables. I've been a janitor, <laughs> <laughs> but I've never waited tables. So, nice. Yeah. Nice. What else you guys got for me? Hmm. Well, do you want to add anything? Yeah, anything more? It's been more? nice talking. No, thanks for, thanks for having me. I, I just, you know, just reiterate that acting... Acting is important, right? I mean, it's 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 hard to see how it's important unless you do it. That it's one of the big, like especially classes on this university, but not just this one. Every university has a hard time understanding. Well, why is acting important? Don't you guys just entertain people and do funny exercises? And I'm like, well, if you want to interview for a job one day, then you need an acting class. Because what I'm doing is I'm teaching you how to present yourself in a real, honest way. That actors aren't liars. We're really good at telling someone else's truth. Like, that's what we do as an actor. That's what I do as an actor, right? I'm living under imaginary circumstances. But from, from the technique of acting, where vocal production, stage presence, all of those things, I'm like, you really don't, you really don't see how that's important for people who want to get a job one day? Because I interview for a living, like I'm, I'm an actor for a living, but every job that I get, I have to interview for. And so when I was on Hawaii Five O, I had to go into a room, I had to think about what I was wearing, I had to present myself and, and convince that person that I was worth their money, mm-hmm. right? And I did it, and I knocked it out of the park, and I got a gig as a bad guy. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> um, but, but I got a job because of the training that I've had as an actor and that you know whether or not you're going to be a professional actor one day uh, I think any business student would especially marketing students anybody who is interested in you know being a competitive force in the workforce needs to know how to read other people's behavior and how to portray themselves in an appropriate in a way that they deem appropriate right and that's an acting class, right? Because that's what we do in acting classes is we mm-hmm. teach you how to read behavior and how to be honest and truthful in the moment and how to relate with somebody different than yourself. And that's just something that I think is vital for any university that's trying to prepare young people for a future, no matter what it's in. Um, so that's, I guess... I guess I've spoken. <laughs> and. <laughs> and cut. And cut. No, but that's, that's what job, I've got. Great. Thank well, you. It's been you. awesome talking awesome. with you. Yes, yes. Thanks, thanks, you guys. You're awesome. Using your time, coming to talk to us. Yep, yep.
Cool. Anytime. Thanks for tuning in. This was the Zeno Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Zeno Podcast. That's X-E-N-O Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about what we talked about today uh, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at podcastzeno at gmail.com. This podcast was brought to you by BYU Hawaii's Reading and Writing Center. Thanks for learning by listening.